The Spectator is Europe's fastest growing current affairs magazine. Subscribe today and find out why. You'll get 12 weeks in print and online for just £12. Plus, we'll send you a bottle of Spectator gin worth £30. So if you do the math, you'll work out that is absolutely free. Go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash gin. Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. In today's episode, I unreservedly praise Pope Francis. And I can hear you thinking, oh, not again, that Thompson. He's such a brown-nosing sycophant when it comes to the Holy Father. Well, sorry, folks, has to be done. The Pope recently gave an interview in which he said that not taking any exercise, having a nap every day and listening to classical music were the secrets to a long life. Well, I certainly hope so. And the reference to classical music didn't come as a surprise. Because, and people are so sceptical when I tell them this, Pope Francis has probably the best taste in music of any Pope in history. I realised this with some surprise early on in his certificate when he gave an interview in which he said, Among musicians, I love Mozart, of course. The Etencarnatus S from his Mass in C minor is matchless. It lifts you to God. I love Mozart performed by Clara Haskell. Mozart fulfils me. But I can't think about music, I have to listen to it. I like listening to Beethoven, but in a Promethean way. And the most Promethean interpreter for me is Furtwängler. And the Pope continued, and then Bach's Passions. The piece by Bach that I love so much is the Ibamadich, the Tears of Peter in the St Matthew Passion. Sublime. Then at a different level, not intimate in the same way, I love Wagner. I like to listen to him, but not all the time. The performance of Wagner's Ring by Furtwängler at La Scala in Milan in 1950 is for me the best, but also The Parsifal by Knappertsbusch in 1962. And when I read that, I thought, wow, your tastes in music are wonderfully refined and well-judged. And I don't just mean the music itself, but the performers and the performances that Francis singles out. The Et Incarnatus S from the Mass in C minor is, indeed, a sublime piece of music. And how frustrating, by the way, that Mozart never got round to finishing this gigantic masterpiece. But it was when I saw the reference to Clara Haskell that my eyes really lit up. Remember, this was 2013, long before I'd become a little bit disillusioned with this pontificate. Clara Haskell. What tremendous power lay in the imagination and the fingers of this very physically frail Romanian Jewish lady, who to look at her seemed physically crushed by the illnesses from which she suffered for so long. It's no accident that at a time when the market for Mozart's piano concertos is ludicrously oversupplied with complete cycles and individual performances, hundreds and hundreds of them, people keep returning to Clara Haskell.
That was Clara Haskell in the slow movement of Mozart's D minor piano concerto, K466, in a famous recording with the Orchestra de Concert Lamoureux and Markovich in 1954. I think you can hear from that that she played Mozart with a simplicity when it was called for that wasn't naive, and also a delicacy in which you can't hear the chink of Dresden China, which is a criticism that's often levelled against Mozart pianists, often female pianists of that era. Here's another clip of the Pope's favourite Mozart pianist, this time playing with Arthur Grumio in Mozart's Violin Sonata in A Major, K526. And I say playing with rather than accompanying, because first of all, Mozart didn't conceive of these sonatas for piano and violin, as I think they were originally published, as a violin accompanied by piano. They're very much partners, and this particular movement is a sort of joyful dialogue in which the sparks really fly, and the violin and the piano try and outdo each other and steal each other's material, and the whole thing is an absolute joy the greatest movement in any violin sonata for my money, which makes it all the more annoying that the microphone placement really doesn't favour the piano. You can't hear quite so much detail, but listen to this and I think you'll work out who's really in charge. hated having to fade that out. It's so wonderful. Why don't I just stop the episode now? Why don't I just stop talking and play the whole movement? But fortunately, it's out of copyright. It's still on Decca, but I see it's all over YouTube, so that's good. Anyway, the next composer that Pope Francis mentions is Beethoven, whom he says he likes to listen to in a Promethean way, and the most Promethean interpreter for me is Furtwängler. Ooh, did you hear that bird song? Poor Beethoven, I think it was the inability to hear birdsong that first really tormented him, as he realised that he really was going deaf. Anyway, it strikes me that Pope Francis really is speaking ex cathedra when he links Beethoven, Prometheus and Furtwängler, because Beethoven was absolutely fascinated by the myth of the Titan who stole fire from the heavens. Perhaps he felt it was a metaphor for his own creative genius. 
At any rate, Beethoven meditated on this story as he was creating The Creatures of Prometheus, that is his ballet for an entertainment that was devised by a dancer and choreographer by the name of Vigano. And that was in 1801. And in the finale of that ballet, Beethoven composed a tune, dance tune, an English dance tune, it was known as, that once written, he couldn't let go of. That's the dance tune that appeared in the ballet, but of course it's much better known when it appears as the subject of the magnificent variations in the finale of the Eroica Symphony. And there's also a fabulous set of piano variations on the same theme. Now, the Eroica was a symphony like nothing that came before it. It broke the mould of the symphony, and if ever there was a work that stole fire from the heavens, this was it. And I think the Pope hits the nail on the head when he describes Wilhelm Furtwängler as a Promethean interpreter of Beethoven generally. Indeed, you could describe Furtwängler as a Promethean conductor, because so many of his performances, not just of Beethoven, have this sense of an audacious act of creation. This was something that put him very much at odds with the other very famous conductor of the middle years of the 20th century, Arturo Toscanini, for whom fidelity to the score was absolutely paramount, however thrilling the rendition. He once said of the first movement of the Eroica, it's not a Napoleon, it's not Hitler, it's not Mussolini, it's Allegro con brio. And I got that quote from a survey of recordings of the Eroica in the gramophone magazine by the great music critic, now writing for the oldie, Richard Osborne, who concludes that however magnificent Toscanini's performances of the Eroica, in the end, the greatest single performance on record is that of Folkwängler and the Vienna Philharmonic in 1944. And this, I'm sure, is a recording with which the Pope is very familiar. And I'm going to take this opportunity of playing five minutes of it, because I don't think you can hear less than five minutes of the finale and understand what's meant by Furtwängler the Promethean. Beethoven begins this set of variations on that dance tune simply by playing the ground bass of the dance tune. You can't actually hear the tune itself. The melody doesn't come in for another couple of minutes. I think you immediately know you're in for an extraordinary performance because the introductory flourish is so defiant, so electric. And then the ground bass, the bass of the tune, is introduced in an austere and almost solemn manner. And you think, well, maybe this is going to be a rather stately performance of the Eroica finale, but far from it. <laughs>
That is why Furtwängler is my favourite conductor of all time. He was playing there with the Vienna Philharmonic rather than the Berlin Philharmonic, of which he was the principal conductor for many years, including almost all the years of Hitler's rule, and he was a great favourite of Hitler, but the admiration was not returned. And whatever else you care to say about Furtwängler, and there isn't time to talk about it now, he was not a Nazi. Incidentally, I hope you notice the astonishingly vivid sound of that 1944 recording. It's been magically remastered by Andrew Rose of Pristine Classical, with whose work, incidentally, Pope Francis is familiar, but we'll come to that later. The Pope also mentions how moved he is by Bach's St. Matthew Passion, and particularly the aria Ebarmadi. I'm going to pass over that now, except to say, good choice, because the next episode of Holy Smoke is devoted to passion music. And so on to Wagner. My dear friend and regular Holy Smoke contributor Gavin Ashenden doesn't think there's any positive spiritual content to be found in Wagner's music, and perhaps I'll debate that with him one day. Pope Francis says he doesn't have the same intimate relationship with Wagner as he does with Bach or Beethoven, but clearly he's completely fascinated by the operas. Let me just note quickly the excellence of his choice of recordings. He goes for Furtwängler's La Scala, complete cycle of The Ring, a live performance from 1950 featuring the great Kirsten Flagstad. One of the things that impresses me about this choice is that Francis must have encountered this extraordinary recording in absolutely wretched sound. It didn't become really orally comfortable to listen to it until Andrew Rose of Pristine Classical remastered it, and the Pope wouldn't have heard that at the time that he gave this interview in 2013. 
when Angela Merkel visited him, she presented him with a huge membrane box of pretty much everything that Fred Wengler recorded. But the ring cycle in that box is the slightly less exciting one taped in Rome. However, soon afterwards, I happened to know that one of Christine's customers presented Francis with the newly remastered version, and I've seen a photograph of him receiving it. So at least now he's heard it in remasterings that really bring it to life. Here's Flaugstad as Brunhilde and Max Lorenz as Siegfried celebrating their love in the prologue to Goethe Dämmerung. And listen to the ecstatic frenzy that Furtwängler whips them up into. And then, right at the end, negotiating that very difficult change of gear into Siegfried's Rhine journey with unsurpassed skill. piece of music that seems to preoccupy Pope Francis more than any other. Wagner's last music drama, Parsifal, an absolutely gorgeous score of more than four hours of music, depicting a story of redemption from sin heavily influenced by the philosophy of Schopenhauer. Richard Wagner, author of one of the nastiest diatribes against Jews ever written, was also the most philosophically literate, erudite and subtle thinker among all the great composers. And making sense of the Christian symbolism in Parsifal has been a terrific challenge for professional philosophers such as Brian McGee and Roger Scruton, let alone the ordinary listener. It's a particular problem for Catholics, since at the heart of Parsifal lies a Eucharistic ceremony conducted by the Knights of the Holy Grail. A priestless mass, if you like, celebrated by a notably anti-Catholic composer. Wagner actually forced his wife Cosima to convert from Catholicism, she was the daughter of the devout Catholic list, to Lutheranism before he'd marry her. Now, I have an interesting source for my information about how important Parsifal is to Pope Francis. A few years ago, I was a guest at a dinner party in Knightsbridge given by 
I'll just say, a very wealthy Chinese person. And this dinner party, one of the other guests was Antonio Banderas, and that was very cool, let me tell you, was built around a short concert by the Sistine Chapel Choir. That may strike you as a bit odd, but let me assure you, it was the real thing. And that gave me the opportunity to ask members of the choir, quite a few of whom are English, about Pope Francis' musical tastes. You see, at this point, I was still a bit sceptical myself. I remember talking to someone very high up in the church, somebody who's worked with the Pope, about the interview in which Francis talked about Clara Haskell and Furtwängler and all the rest of it. And this prelate said, oh, it can't be true. He's not like that. He doesn't have those sophisticated tastes. I bet the Jesuits just gave him a list of things he ought to like to prove that he was cultured. And the guys from the Sistine Chapel said, no, he is really into music. He knows his BWV numbers. That's the catalogue of more than a thousand works produced by J.S. Bach. I mean, I'm not suggesting he knows them all. And sometimes, apparently, Francis will insist on a particular edition of a work, a particular performing edition being used rather than another one. And one singer said to me, you know, he really is obsessed with Parsifal. He says that given the opportunity, he'd listen to the whole thing at least once a week. So what's the fascination? Alex Ross, the fabled music critic of The New Yorker, has written a fascinating article that you can find on his own website called Papal Wagnerism. Ross quotes a section from that very long 2013 interview that Francis gave, talking about music, in which the then new Pope said this, When does a formulation of thought cease to be valid, when it loses sight of the human or even when it's afraid of the human or deluded about itself? The deceived thought can be depicted as Ulysses encountering the song of the siren, or as Tannhäuser in an orgy surrounded by satyrs and bacchantes, or as Parsifal in the second act of Wagner's opera in the Palace of Klingsor. The thinking of the church must recover genius and better understand how human beings understand themselves today in order to develop and deepen the church's teaching. That was Francis and his Alex Ross's take on it. These are surprising analogies, to say the least. If I'm not mistaken, Pope Francis is comparing decadent Thomist commentaries to Klingsor's Magic Garden, a seductive illusion covering a wasteland. Could the Pope's emergent philosophy of unadorned compassion have been influenced in some way by Parsifal, that attempted renovation of religious thought through musical ritual? Well, these are really deep waters. Not least because few popes have shown less interest in the aesthetics of worship than Francis. And traditionalists will say, well, that's a good thing, because when the Pope does turn his mind to liturgy, he shows that he's implacably hostile to the most profound source of aesthetic beauty and truth in the Church, which is the traditional Latin Mass. Now, of course, that's familiar territory for this podcast, and just for once, let's not go there. I'll always hold the opinion that that other great papal music lover, Joseph Ratzinger, truly entered the history books when he reintroduced the Latin Mass or reintegrated it with the new Mass, and I'm desperately hoping that nothing will be done to undo that. What we can't say is that Francis doesn't care at all about the standard of music in church. He seems to be quite enthusiastic about the fairly radical changes to the Sistine Chapel choir 
which used to be known for good reason as the Sistine Screamers. I remember attending a service in St Paul outside the walls in 2006 and rarely have I heard such sub-operatic caterwauling. Thanks to the introduction of singers from the English choral tradition, the Sistine Chapel Choir sounds much better now, though it's not remotely in the league and doesn't claim to be in the league as the world's greatest Catholic choir, which is the Choir of Westminster Cathedral, whose heritage is being unforgivably neglected by Cardinal Vincent Nichols. And then there's this, something I've only just discovered, which is an address that Francis gave to participants in the International Conference on Sacred Music, held in Rome in 2017 in which he said, Certainly the meeting with modernity in the introduction of vernacular languages into the liturgy has raised many problems of musical languages, forms and genres. At times a certain mediocrity, superficiality and banality have prevailed to the detriment of the beauty and intensity of the liturgical celebrations. That's why the various actors in this field, musicians and composers, conductors and singers in Scola Cantorum, and those involved in the liturgy, can make a valuable contribution to the renewal, especially in quality, of sacred music and liturgical chant. Critics might say, well, somebody wrote that for him. But it's hard to imagine somebody who appreciates the exquisite playing of Clara Haskell not wincing when they hear the music that I always describe as Joan Baez meets Hildegard of Bingen in a 1970s cocktail lounge. But I'll spare you a musical illustration because the shysters who produce it, I mean, they're not all shysters, but quite a few of them are, make an absolute fortune through enforcing copyright. On the other hand, there's no evidence that Francis's personal appreciation of the power of music is leading him to take any serious interest in the spiritual renovation of the Catholic aesthetic, that the beauty and intensity of liturgical celebrations, his own phrase, is one of his priorities even though actually it should be, because the ugliness of worship is a major barrier to participation by modern people who are used to professional standards in music and the other arts. And this puzzles me, because Francis apparently has no difficulty recognising the special qualities that recommend the performance of Parsifal by Knappertsbusch at Bayreuth in 1962 as exceptional. Here's the transformation music in which the youth Parsifal is led towards the home of the Knights of the Holy Grail, a place where he's told time becomes space.
That's music of the utmost grandeur, subtlety and nobility. It's music that obviously fascinates the Pope, who, dare I say it, displays infallibly good judgment in identifying the finest performances of these great works. But here's the problem, as I see it, and the mystery. And actually, I think it's rather a sad one. Pope Francis's deep appreciation of and emotional attachment to some of the greatest products of the human imagination really amounts to a true love. And yet, where is its expression? Its significance remains elusive, and therefore so do the fruits that it might have borne for the wider church. <laughs> 